Thanks, Eric. Um, our reading today is from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. So, cultural moment here. Uh, since 2003, we've been serving in Odessa, Ukraine, uh, often mostly among uh, Ukrainian Baptists or uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox influenced people. <clears throat> so there's, there's some rituals that I like that they do uh, that I want to introduce here. So when someone in Ukraine is preaching and says, we're going to read the word of the Lord, everybody stands. Oh, I didn't even have to ask you to stand. That's great. Okay, so we stand and then we read. <clears throat> and we also thank God constantly for this. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, who are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their own sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. And then you can sit. So thank you for that introduction, Eric. I, Julie and I and, and our kids are are uh, thrilled to be here. Um, it, uh, it's a real blessing to have found a, a church <clears throat> that to us <clears throat> is quite large. Um, churches we served in in Ukraine were, you know, if you had, if we had in our last church plant, um, if we had 20 people, that was like, you know, we need to find a new place to meet. This is, this is too many people. Uh, it, it was amazing. You know, if we had 10 people, that was average. And and if you had a pastor, or even not a pastor, a preacher, not even a preacher, someone who could, who could, just, who, who could express the word of God reasonably, who could visit your church twice a month, that was a huge blessing. At Castleton, you know, with 300, around 300-ish members, uh, you not only have four people on staff that can preach, you have several others in the congregation who can fill the pulpit too and lead Bible studies. It's a huge blessing. And I don't count myself among those. I'm not really much of a preacher. I'm, I'm more of an excitable teacher. Uh, so, so I won't be following like, like the, the protocols of preaching, which Tommy does so well. Oh, that's right. He gave me a time limit. And <clears throat> this is good. You know what it means when a, a preacher or a teacher starts a timer, right? Yeah, nothing. It means nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <clears throat> Okay, so um, I don't have, since I'm not a preacher, I don't have an anecdote or a news story or something to get you started and thinking. Um, uh, I'm more of a teacher, so I have a question. I have a question for you uh, to think about a little bit and to ponder. So my question is really simple. Um, what are you thankful for? Uh, and when I, when I say that I, I'm, because we're believers and we're gathering together, I'm implying to God, but just <clears throat> when you think to yourself, I'm really thankful for, how do you finish that prepositional phrase? 
Now, just, just to have a little bit, and we can do this as a community, too. You think about, what are we as a community, as Caston Community Church, what are we thankful for? Now, now just to add a little bit of accountability here, um, you don't have to do this, but <clears throat> once you take out your phones, text someone who, you know, you have a pretty good relationship with, a close friend, and just text them a phrase. Finish that phrase. I'm thankful for, send them the noun section of that prepositional phrase. You know, and as I think, <clears throat> the things that come to mind, on my better days, I'm thankful for life, for food for that day, for, for income. Um, there's always an asterisk there, because I always want more food and more income, but, but, but really on my best days, I'm thankful that, that, that I have both those. I'm, always, I'm thankful for my family, I'm thankful for the church. The, the, the blessing of the, the, the richness uh, of the ability of this community to share uh, uh, the word of God is a huge blessing. I'm, I'm thankful that we live in a time and in a culture and in a place where we have access to truths in our own language that we don't even have to work to find. Not only do we have the scriptures in our own language, we have the scriptures in the original languages. Not only do we have the scriptures in our own language and the original language, we have about 2,000 years of thought about the scriptures and people and podcasts and radio shows and books to help us wade through the massive amounts of material we have. That even today, as an English speaker, you have access to things that, that nobody else in the world does. Because everything that's written just about is translated into English, but not everything in English is translated into other languages. So those are some things I'm thankful for. So I, I did that mostly to give you time to text. So, so now that you've text, I'll come to that. I'll come to that later. I'll come back to that later. Um, back, to, back to Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, that's where, that's where we're at. Eric started this a few weeks ago. It's been a while since we've been in a book. So let me, let me, let me uh, uh, remind you of some of the background. So <clears throat> who's writing? Pretty simple. You read. You read the first verse, you see Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, were they writing all together? You might think that at first, but later on, Paul says things like, I, Paul, wanted to send Timothy to you. Well, he uses a first-person uh, pronoun. Uh, you'll, you'll, probably, you'll probably figure out that um, uh, I, I'm a little bit of a grammar geek. It's, it's kind of leftovers from... I was an engineer and now I'm a recovering engineer and <clears throat> I studied languages and grammar and so like the engineering kind of seeped into that and it, it just clouds everything I say. So, <clears throat> so yeah, you see Paul say, I am doing this, I am thankful for you, I wanted to send Timothy. So it's clearly from Paul. So where is he? Now that's a little harder question. Um, I'm not going to explain it all, I'm just going to tell you. He's in Corinth. He's in Corinth, he's writing to the Thessalonians. Um, who's he writing to? I just answered that, to the Thessalonians. Um, why? Why is he writing, and what's, what's the background? Now, if you read Acts 16 and 17, you get some of the background. If you read all of First and Second Thessalonians, you get more of the background. If you put them together, you get actually a pretty interesting story. See, Paul is on a second missionary journey. So he leaves Antioch. He's heading right for Asia which is where I think he wanted to go on the first journey, but that's a different story, a different sermon. If you like this one, maybe you'll invite me back. If you don't, well, it's been terrific. 
Second time, he tries to go into Asia. He wants to go to, I, I believe, Ephesus. He, the Spirit doesn't allow him. He was, tries to go to Bithynia. Can't go there. He gets the Macedonian call. We all see that, right? He has a dream. Come over, help us. He says, okay. He goes over there. He ends up in Philippi, plants a small church there, ends up in jail, gets beaten up, has to leave. Luke joins him before he passes out, before he goes over to Philippi. He leaves Luke in Philippi, goes on to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he's there three-ish weeks. Goes to the synagogue, he's preaching, has a great, has a great response, but there's also a riot. And so they tell him to leave. So him, Timothy, and Silas leave. Remember, Luke's back in Philippi. They go down to Berea. Now the Bereans, they're, they're more receptive. Uh, and, and he's enjoying time in Berea. He's, he's seen a lot of fruit. But some, some, some of the leaders, some of the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica come down, cause problems. So the Bereans say, hey, we got to get you out of town before you get hurt again. They take Paul to the coast. They take him down to Athens. And he leaves Timothy and Silas back in Berea. And when he's in Athens, he sends word please send Timothy and Silas to me. And that's, you don't know if, if they come to him or not. Now, he's all alone in Athens. His plans have been completely destroyed. You know, remember, he wanted to go to Asia in the beginning. He ends up in Europe. He gets, he's been thrown out of two places, three places so far. And now he's all alone in Athens. Now, when you read the Thessalonian letters, you see that he sent Timothy from Athens back to Thessalonica. So Timothy and Silas must have come to him. So you imagine Timothy and Silas come down, they meet him, they regroup. He says, okay, our plans are destroyed. We're still here. We still have lots to do. Let's regroup. So here's what we're going to do. Timothy, you go back to Thessalonica because I want to hear how they're doing. I'm really worried about them. They were growing, but there was a lot of opposition. Silas, you go back to Berea. You, you, let, me, you let me know how they're doing. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to move on to Corinth. Meet me there. And we see that in Acts where Luke, in 17, he says, when Paul was in Corinth, Timothy and Silas came to him, not from Berea, where we saw him last, but from Macedonia, probably because they were in two places. So when they come to him, they bring news about the churches, and especially good news from the church in Thessalonica. So Paul is so excited about that, he sits down and he writes this first letter. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> I don't know why I write these notes. I never follow them. Um, so that's, that's the background. So where are we in the letter? So Paul sits down, he writes this letter, um, and it's a standard epistle, uh, but it has one unique thing. It has an ex extended introduction. He gives a typical greeting, uh, an introduction, then he extends the introduction all the way to the end of verse 3, and we're right in the middle of that in chapter 2. And in this introduction, he talks a lot about their history, what he's thankful for them, things they did for him, things he did for them, and, and mostly what he's thankful about. And that's, that's right where we are, <clears throat> where he's talking about, he's just talked about how thankful he was for the way they received them. Now he's going to talk about how thankful he is for them. Now, Something else interesting, when Paul's writing this, what scriptures are available to him? Because uh, as evangelicals, we love to read a couple of passages of scripture, get triggered by a word, and then go somewhere else and talk about that, and go somewhere else and talk about that, and try and systematize the whole thing, and, and usually miss the point. That's my skepticism. 
I like to stay in one passage and see what they had available to him, figure out what's going on there, and then we can expand that. Anyway, what did Paul have available to him? Well, the Old Testament, right? He had the Old Testament, uh, probably the Hebrew uh, without the vowels, um, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, some of the New Testament documents. He had the, the, the letter from the Jerusalem Council from Acts 15, probably the book of James is written already. Uh, he's probably already written Galatians, maybe Jude. Honestly, honest moment here, I have no idea when Jude was written. Perhaps Matthew. Now that might surprise you. You can talk to me later about that. Um, and fun fact, 13 to 16, just two sentences. 13 is a sentence, 14 to 16 is a sentence. Now that's great because it makes it really easy because it's just two sentences. But it's Paul. So it's also hard because Paul has a way of writing where he, he uses these rhetorical and syntactical things and, and grammatical things and he packs a whole bunch into just a little bit and, and, and it, it often takes us a long time to wade through it, but it's really, really rich. Uh, um, uh, so since it's easy, I'm gonna, again, forget about the, all the, the rules of preaching and I'm gonna give you the main points right away. Um, and the easy part of this passage is Paul has just one main point. It's really simple. If you leave with anything today, here it is. Here it is. Paul is constantly thankful to God for three things. That the Thessalonians received their message for what it really is, the word of God. Number two, that word which they received is working in them. Number three, that they are remaining faithful and bold in the face of strong opposition. That's it. That's his main point. My application will also be really, really easy. I'm going to ask you just to ponder these things. So, you know, if you've got a busy Sunday or if you're tired, you can, like, you can, you can go back to Netflix and you got the whole message. If you, if you want some more of Paul's richness and the hardness of it, stick around and and, and what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to take you down a road with Paul, confuse you, confound you, and then hopefully bring you back to his, his primary message. And, and it's not my fault, it's, it's Paul's. So if you've got a problem with it, you can, you can talk to him. Okay, so do we got the main point? He's thankful. And you see the connection to the first question, what are you thankful for? Um, spoiler alert, I'm not going to guilt you, I, at least not intentionally, I, I promise. Um, Paul starts the passage in 13 with the words, and because of this, we also constantly give thanks to God. First, first thing to note, um, this is not a one-time thing. Paul isn't saying, I'm thankful and I'm moving on. He's constantly, habitually thankful for this, whatever this is. So, so um, uh, the second thing is he's thankful to God. He's not thankful to himself to the faiths, even to the Thessalonians. He is, he expresses that, but here in this passage, he's focusing, I am thankful to God for this. So now, what's the this? Well, you got two options, really. The things he already said, you know, I, he describes how you received us and the great things that happened. I'm thankful for this. Or he means the things I'm about to tell you. I'm thankful for this, and I'm about to tell you that. Which one? Okay, I heard both. That's a great answer. It's wrong, but it's a really good answer. I appreciate your boldness. That's, I appreciate, yeah, that's terrific. My wife hates it when I do that, by the way. So um, I'll be, 
I'll be, well, forget I started that sentence. Anyway, it's the after. Now, why do I, why do I say it's the after? I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, uh, the section starts with a conjunction and, and I am thankful, um, which is nothing, nothing unusual, nothing special about that. However, Paul repeats it. He repeats the end, uh, and for this, and I'm thankful, but we don't translate it and because it doesn't mean and when it's twice. It means something like also, which is I think what the ESV says. And I am also thankful for this, right? So he's saying, I'm thankful for what I've said and there's something coming that I'm also thankful for. Does that make sense? <clears throat> All right, so, um, right, I said that. And after he says, because of this, he says, I'm thankful to God, he adds a little word that. That, which is a connector, which, which, which points forward to the following things. So, and because of this also, I am thankful to God that, it kind of pulls you forward, kind of anticipate, gets you to anticipate what he's about to say. So he's saying, I'm thankful, implied for what I've already said, but really, I'm about to tell you something that I'm really, really thankful for. So it's the following thing. So those two together move us forward. So Paul is constantly thankful for three things. I've already told you that. The first one, that the Thessalonians received their message, the message they preached, as truly the word of God. He writes that they received the word they heard from them. Um, now, since when we read the letter, we know that Paul told them more than a simple gospel. He told them more that then Jesus loves you, he died for you, he rose again, there's salvation available. They know that. But we know when we read both letters, he, he talked about ethical concerns. He talked about Old Testament references. He talked about Jesus' return, his coming return, and the hope. He talked about those who died. He talked about a lot of things. And in fact, in the second letter especially, he talks about some things. And he says, he, he says you know what I'm talking about because I told you, so he doesn't explain. But that leaves us hanging 2,000 years later because... We don't know what he said, and he leaves us hanging. I, I want to know, but he leaves it a mystery. Anyway, that's, a, that's, that's another different sermon or problem or maybe my own issue. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, um, we know that he told them more than a simple gospel. So, and we know that he was in the synagogues, and he was talking to Jewish and Gentile believers. So when he says the word we preach to you, he probably means something like, the message of the gospel extending from the Old Testament drama with its many implications for life and faith. How's that for sense? That's probably what he means. That's probably what they understood. That not just that Jesus loves you, but the one who would cor correct the sin in the garden by crushing the head of Satan, the one we've been expecting, the one who is a servant, but also a warrior, who is powerful, but also somehow suffers, who will come and save Israel, but we don't know how, and maybe there's two of them, maybe there's one of them, maybe the, we, we don't know. He's telling them that he already came, and here's how he accomplished. Here's the big reveal, the mystery. He sacrificed himself for us, and he puts all those in order, and he's coming not once, but twice. So he, he sets up the kingdom, there's a long kingdom pause, and he's coming back, and that's our future hope. So he's explained all that to them, and they received it, not as just some philosophy, they received it, as the word of God, and that brings Timothy, Paul, and Silas great joy, and they're thankful. 
The second reason Paul is thankful is at the end of verse 13. The ESV says, which is a work in you who believe. Now Paul's thankful that, that the word of God, which they received, is working in them. Uh, the grammar of this phrase has an ongoing idea. Whatever the word is doing, it's doing it continually. So it's, it's working in them all the time. It's a regular part of their life. It's a characteristic of that community in, in, in Thessalonica. Uh, now here we come to some of the difficult. <clears throat> One little phrase at work in you. Four options. Could mean in you individuals. So in you community, in you, in you, in you, in you, in you. Or... In you, community, meaning the word of God is working among you. Or, so that's two, or it could mean <clears throat> the word of God is working with you. Well, that's a little different. Or it could mean the word of God is working by you. That's also different. Now, we, we got to double those because it's a plural you, which could mean you, 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 or y'all. Yeah, I'm California. That, that just feels bad in my mouth. <clears throat> you all. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> um, but the first and the second, among you, 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 or in you, or among you, they're kind of the singular and plural, the same thing, so we can knock down the eight to the six. And so we have six options, and this is, this is what happens when you take a recovering engineer, give him a little theological training, and release him into the wild. It just doesn't end well. You end up with six options from three words. This is terrible. So how do we decide? Well, because they're different, right? If we say, among you individuals, the word of God is working among you. I mean, he's working among Eric. He's working among me. He's working among each one of you. Or if I say he's working among you community, he's, he's transforming this community into something kingdom-focused that's visible to everybody. That's, that's totally different. If he's working with you, this is synergistic. The spirit has his work, you have his work, and when you work together in synergy, it's, it's, it, brings a, it, brings, it brings about effective results. Or, or by you means that the word becomes effective when you add your energy to it. No, those are all very different. How do we decide? I don't know, so let's move on. Yeah, I'm joking, I know. I'm joking. <clears throat> context. It's, it's all about context. It's all about context. Everything Paul said so far is expressed in a communal way. And, and this makes total sense in the context, in the historical, in the cultural context. Roman, Greek, and Jewish cultures were very communal. That was the default. Um, <clears throat> the Hebrews are the most communal. The Romans and the Greeks are not far behind, though. <clears throat> so... The first century mindset, listeners, they're going to gravitate towards the communal. Now, Paul, as the author, he knows that. He wants them to understand, so he uses language they would, they would understand. And he, if he just says, in you, he knows that they gravitate towards the communal, meaning among you, so he doesn't clarify. He can mean among you, 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 or one of the others, but usually he, he adds extra words, like among each one of you or among each one of you, but he doesn't do that here. He just says, in you, so we can understand it is among you. It's a communal thing. So the word of God is working among them as a community to transform them into a kingdom community that, that produces preachers, the teachers, servant-hearted people, missionaries. And we know that from the rest of the letter because he's getting reports from all over Macedonia about how wonderful this congregation is. 
So we see that the word of God is transforming them, and he gets confirmation from Timothy. And again, this brings him great joy and thankfulness. Third, Paul's thankful that the Thessalonians are remaining faithful and bold in the face of strong opposition. He says, you have become imitators of the churches of God in Judea. Um, in what ways were the imitators of the churches of God in Judea? They're suffering from the hands of their own countrymen. Even though this is a mix of, of Jews and Gentiles in Thessalonica, Paul probably has in mind his fellow, Thess the fellow Thessalonians are persecuting Thessalonians. It's an argument from analogy. Uh, the same way the church in Judea is being persecuted by uh, Jewish unbelievers, you in Thessalonica are being persecuted by Thessalonian unbelievers. Um, and it's somewhere here in my notes. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, he says that you are remaining strong and faithful to the word and continue to grow in the spirits working among you, even in the midst of the strong opposition. And again, he's thankful and overjoyed of that. And, and that's it. That's the whole point. He ends his main points there. Now there's more. There's more in our passage, and I'm going to get to that. But I want you to see that that's what he's thankful for. Those are his values, right? He's, he's, thankful, he's, he's thankful for God that they, um, they received the word, the word uh, that it's working among them, and that they're staying strong in the faith of opposition. <clears throat> then, at the end of 14... He uses five descriptors, five statements, and, uh, and makes a significant expansion on what he thinks of those who are persecuting the church in Judea. And good, I have time to do this. This is good. Um, <clears throat> and these, these five statements are, are good. Um, um, I guess in English we would say food for thought. Uh, in Russian you would say food for pondering. It's, it's just pretty pretty similar. So he gives five descriptive statements, and then he expands on the fifth one. Um, and it's important to pay attention to descriptors like this. They tell us that Paul is talking specifically about the Jews in the first century in Judea who were causing the church to suffer. He's not talking about all Jews in all places. Because the first one he says, um, let, me, let, me, let me read it to you. Um, he says in 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Now when you read the commentators, you see a question like, why is Paul blaming just the Jews for killing Jesus? It says right there, the Jews who killed both Jesus and the prophets. Um, it's the only place that I know of, and I'm pretty sure it's the only place in Paul's writings where he singles out the Jews in this way as the ones responsible for Jesus' death. Uh, in John, it says the Jews, but usually he means the Jewish leaders. In, in, in Luke Acts, it usually is a combination of Jewish leaders and Gentile leaders working together. But here, he just, he just says the Jews. Um, <clears throat> When you think about it in the context, it, it, I don't think it's all that hard. It's like I said before, if we pay attention to the descriptors, Paul is talking in a specific context. He's talking about Jews in the first century who are causing harm to the church in Judea 
while he is writing. He's not talking about himself. He's not talking about Peter, Paul, James, who are also in Judea. He's not talking about the Jews in Antioch. He's not talking about Silas and Timothy or anybody else. He's talking about those Jews who are in a certain place in a certain time and acting in a certain way. And they, at least some of them participated in the death of Jesus. <clears throat> then, he, then he goes a step further. He says, they, the ones who killed Jesus, are the ones who killed the prophets. Now, I've often passed over this phrase, but in light of current events, it, it caught my eye. Um, <clears throat> and again, this is not the main point, but I think it's a strong implication. He's talking about Jews in Judea living at the time he's writing who are actively persecuting the church in Judea. But he also holds them, that group of people, responsible on some level for killing the prophets. He has them both in the same category. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean that they're responsible for, for Jesus' death and the prophets? Now, I'm, I'm not honest. Now, this one's true. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it means that they're culpable for the death of prophets. Um, and when I'm not sure, I usually go back to what I actually know. Here's what I know. The Jews in Jerusalem did take part actively in the death of Jesus. The Jews in Jerusalem did not take part actively in the death of all the prophets. That happened before they were born. However, Paul holds them morally responsible on some level for the death of the prophets. Um, as I was reading this, I was struck by the implication because of the obvious cultural struggle we're in now. Uh, Paul seems to assume a worldview that in some cases, now remember, I'm saying in some cases, a current generation is, in some sense, morally responsible for the sins or actions of a previous generation. I don't know exactly how a current generation holds responsibility for the actions of a previous generation. But Paul seems to be assuming that they do have some culpability, at least sometimes. He doesn't expand or explain when or how, uh, but he assumes it in that little descriptor phrase. Now, in various conversations in my adult life, uh, especially about race, um, I've often heard phrases like, I wasn't there. My generation didn't do those things. So we shouldn't have to fix it. We shouldn't have to do anything. It's not my fault because we weren't there. Um, in, in, I grew up in a very multicultural environment in Los Angeles, so... So uh, I had Jewish friends, I had black friends. Uh, it, it, was very, it was very normal for me to have friends from uh, Muslim background and, and Sikh background. I didn't realize that was unusual until years later. So a lot of these conversations happened, and I heard that, and, and I heard that a lot. Um, <clears throat> but when I read this phrase, it doesn't say that every generation is to blame for the sins of previous generations. I don't want to make scripture go too far, but if we believe that all scripture is inspired by God, uh, then we have to take even, even the, the non-main points implications seriously. <clears throat> um, it doesn't say that every generation is responsible for the sins of previous generations, but it opens the door to the possibility uh, and what it concretely does, at least it did in my understanding, is it takes off the table that argument as an axiom, as an axiom, that argument that my generation isn't the one who did that, so we're not responsible, so we don't have to do anything. Okay, I knew that would make it real quiet, um, but I think it's important to ponder 
even these things and apply them in ways that will shape our worldview because this is a piece of Paul's worldview that I noticed this week that wasn't really part of my worldview. So I'm still in the process of pondering that. And again, this is an implication worth pondering, not his main point. And he moves on to the next characteristic in 15, and that's that the Jews in Judea persecuting the church also persecuted Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He says, who have persecuted us or who have been opposed to us. He can, Paul can identify with the Thessalonians on an experiential level. Fourth, the Jews in Judea, also in 15, persecuting the church, are not pleasing to God because of their action is the implication. Further, moving on to 16, they're opposed to all men, or at the end of 15, sorry. Finally, in 16, Paul further explains what he means by not pleasing God to God and opposed to all men. They are constantly hindering our proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. They are specifically opposed to Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, like the many Gentiles in Thessalonica, although it's a Jew-Gentile mix, and in Berea, and in Corinth, where he is there, <clears throat> where he's writing from. And he gives two results of the actions of the Jews in Judea who are persecuting the church. He says they're filling up their sins. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to know exactly what he means, but it probably means something like God is being patient with them and, and the wrath is building up, but they're not, maybe not experiencing the full force of God's wrath right now. But then he says, but the wrath has come upon them. And again, here you have some strange grammar. It could mean the wrath has come upon them at last, like the ESV says, or in the end, or until the end. So what's the wrath? <clears throat> well, it's the wrath of God. That's not important now. Um, <clears throat> it could be a reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which would be future from Paul's standpoint. It could be a reference to the expulsion of the Jews from Rome, which would be passed from Paul's standpoint. Uh, it could be a reference to the massacre at Passover in Jerusalem, which would be passed from Paul's standpoint. Um, <clears throat> until the end, he says, wrath has come, past tense, until the end. That tells me that it started and it hasn't ended yet. <clears throat> and Remember, he hasn't written Romans yet, but in Romans 11, he says something interesting. He says, he says, basically, I've turned to the Gentiles, and God is blessing the Gentiles, so the Jews will be jealous. And when the time of the Gentiles is full, all of Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean? Different, different discussion. But it, we can say that something is going on now that puts the Jews who are opposed to Christ under wrath that time will end when, the, when the, the Gentile time is over and then there'll be a massive conversion of Jews. It could be a reference to that, that the wrath has already started on them and this will continue on until the end implied of the time of the Gentiles. Or it could simply mean until judgment day. Depends how you develop your systematic theology and I don't have time to do that for you or for me. Um, uh, and, and then he's done with our passage at least. He moves on. But what do I want you to remember today? The main three points, right? What's Paul thankful for? Thessalonians received the word of God as truly the word of God. That the word of God which they received is working among them. That they're remaining faithful and bold in the face of strong opposition. So what's my application? 
Now that we have some understanding of what Paul has communicated to the original audience, how does it affect us? Look at what Paul's thankful for, and I don't want, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, and compare it to what you're thankful for. We can do this on a communal level too. Look at what we're thankful for and what Paul and Timothy and Silas are thankful for. Compare the two, simply think about it, ponder it, talk to God about it, talk to each other about it, and let those ponderings on the word of God shape your own worldview. Not from guilt, but from a desire to see how God thinks and how he's expressed himself through his apostles. Uh, we can also note how Paul expressed his thankfulness. He did it constantly. He did it to God, primarily. Then to men, and in other ways. But he says, I am thankful to God for, for you. Think about some of the implications from the assumed worldview of Paul, of, of the Jews being responsible for Jesus' death and the prophets, remembering that he's talking about a specific group doing specific actions in a specific time in a specific locale, not all Jews for all time. Um, if you want to ponder some more, think about the traits of the church in Thessalonica that Paul is thankful for, and, and think about the traits of the community that we're building here that God or the Spirit is doing among us here, and how they match up. Again, not saying think about what to change, let the Spirit walk you through that and reveal those things. Finally, after some time, come back to the passage again, reread it, and ponder what God's teaching you through this small section of his word. Talk to him about it, talk to friends about it, fill your hearts and minds, and as Paul will later on say to the Colossian church, he hasn't written this yet, that's in my view how we let the word of God richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I'm not against scripture memorization, I love it, but I think that kind of filling of the word comes from pondering, not memorization. Memorization can lead to pondering, but doesn't necessarily. So, again, my application, simply ponder. So thank you for listening and I'm going to pray in a minute, but don't get excited. I'm going to add another cultural moment. In Ukraine, when the preacher finishes his sermon, there's a clue he's done. He says, amen. So, amen. I say here, thank you for letting me talk and listening and not throwing things. <clears throat> then he says, let's pray, and there's a pause. Now, why is there a pause? Because there's only two ways you pray among a conservative group in Ukraine. And neither one of them is sitting. You either stand or kneel. So the preacher says, let's pray. And everybody either stands or kneels. He pauses and then he prays. So let's try this. Let's pray. Ah, oh, beautiful. Thank you. Father, we are thankful for so many things. We're thankful that we live in a society where we have the freedom to openly ponder your word, proclaim your word, that we are not, we are not suffering the, the same sufferings that the churches in Judea did in the first century, that the church in Thessalonica did in the first century. We are thankful that we have so many freedoms, that we have so many resources, that we have your word available to us, so many uh, references, so many rich resources to help us know you better and walk with you better. 
Thank you that we have a community who loves you, who wants to see your kingdom come, who wants to see your gospel proclaimed, who is growing, who, in whom the Spirit is truly working, or among whom the Spirit is truly, is truly working. We're thankful that we have people who are educated and passionate about sharing the word. We're thankful that there are people here who are growing and, and will in the future be able to take the lead in taking over the, the ministry of the word in proclamation, in growing deeper, in defending. We're thankful for the technology to be able to share these things. We're thankful for the sensitivity of our leaders to to re-enter into a corporate worship in a very careful and meaningful and graceful way. And Lord, as we ponder, as we ponder the things of your word, not just this passage, but, but all the passages, uh, may we not push your word to say more than it says. May we not shy away from your word to, to ignore things that it says that are painful. May we ponder them, think of them, talk to you about them. Let them transform our lives. Let the Spirit use the word to shape the way we think, the way we act, the way we love, the way we care, and the way we minister. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.